And welcome, everybody, to this week's edition of Truth to Power here on Forward Radio. My name is Justin Mogg, one of the volunteers here at the station, and I'm excited to be guest hosting Truth to Power this week, where I'm going to bring you part two of our highlights from the Environmental Justice Conference an annual conference held on October 1st. Uh, it was virtual this year. The West Jefferson County Community Task Force, NAACP, and UofL's Enviro Institute were proud to present this sixth annual environmental justice conference on climate change and health, people, principles, priorities, and policymaking. And you can learn more about it at facebook.com slash WJCCTF. And on this second edition of Highlights, we're going to hear from Swan Jet uh, from Park Duval's uh, CEO of Park Duval's Health Center, sharing the vision and challenges of the center. Ted Smith from U of L, director of the Center for Healthy Air, Water, and Soil, on flushing health insights down the drain. Natasha DeJarnett from U of L on climate change and environmental justice, and we wrap it up with Dr. Kelly McCants a medical doctor of cardiovascular disease from a director of Norton's West End Hospital. It's a great review of environmental health and injustices in our community. You won't want to miss it right here on Truth to Power on Forward Radio. Good morning, everyone. I give an oversight of where Park Duval is going and a little bit of glimpse of the work that I have done in Louisville, as well as other major cities around population health and environmental justice. Um, first, you know, Park Duval has been around. It's the oldest FQHC in the state. It was founded in 67 and opened its doors in 68. We are heavily focused on a patient first atmosphere. So right now, as you walk into our facilities, the main one has been renovated, but you will see all of our employees now wearing the patient first lapel. Um, so to me, that was first and foremost what we should be doing. You know, many people don't know Dr. Harvey Sloan was the first CEO. Um, he eventually became mayor. We just established a Harvey Sloan Patient Assistance Fund for pharmacy. Um, that's one of the critical areas that I find the need in the community is being able to provide pharmacy service at a reduced price. A lot of people don't know, but Park Duval actually established the ambulance service. And so historically, there was no primary care in the West End, which is why Park Duval was established, but also there was no way to take anybody to the hospital. So we actually started the ambulance service. There was a hospital on the West End, a lot of people don't remember, and that was Portland. That was actually the first. These are the locations of Park Duval. The one in Newburgh is changing, along with the one in Chestnut Street has moved over to Russell neighborhood. But the one in Newburgh has changed, and it's now, it will be open later on in October. Brand new facility, and it will provide all the same service for pharmacy, dental, behavioral health, adult medical, OBGYN services, and as well as pediatrics. We also provide dentistry. These are our mobile units. So from time to time, you will see them in the community. Also, we do deliver pharmacy. Not only do we take Medicaid, Medicare, but we do take private insurance as well. So why Park Duval and how did we get in the game of health equity? I would say years ago when I was working with Louisville Metro Public Health, we actually started that journey on health equity and data. We moved to try to work with the Family Health Center and also work with Park Duval years ago in order to collect data to be able to do continuously community health needs assessments, 
to actually find out why people were showing up in our operations, but also what services we could provide. It's one thing to treat somebody for asthma, but said it's another thing to remove those environmental issues that occurred that created the situation. So we have to constantly measure, collect data, have an equity lens, and then establish policies that actually can change what is going on in our communities. When I was president for National Association of County City Health Officials in 2015-2016, I put a challenge out. It covered all the health departments nationwide because the health departments are the conduits to be able to do the investigation, to be able to look at the data, to be able to look at the overall needs of the community. But being the chief health strategist brings the hospital sector together brings all the entities to provide care, but also transportation, education, looking at food access, looking at is the community safe, looking at gun violence, hospitalizations. The, the need for community health assessment is the framework to be able to identify what are the existing problems and how do we change that. So I talked a little bit about, you know, we can build a hospital, we can continue to do primary care, but we really got to go back and dive into the social determinants of health. They created the conditions, why we need to build a hospital, why we need to expand primary care. We'll never have a one-to-one ratio on solving health equity issues that we see by providers. We have to use population health approaches in order to solve some of these larger issues that loom. And I say we have environmental justice issues all around the country. Uh, Me being an environmental engineer, a scientist, epidemiologist, often when I go to a city and I'm the health commissioner, in this case, you know, I'm moving into CEO remote primary care, but I still have that equity lens. So I did some research when I arrived in Sanford, Florida. I arrived shortly after Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman incident occurred, the murder occurred, and African Americans were complaining about a lot of issues that existed. So I needed some evidence of what was going on. And I found that there was a racial divide where Sanford exists. Actually, the oldest African American community in the nation is actually Goldsboro, but it was annexed into Sanford, which made, made Eatonville number one. Now, the historical connotation about what has happened to most of our major cities, people don't understand. For Sanford, Henry Shelter Sanford bought Sanford for $18,000. And when he did, he decided to extradite African-Americans back to the Republic of Congo. Why? For the exploration of ivory, other natural resources. In this convoy, sending people back and forth, trying to get natural resources out of Republic of Congo, 10 million people died. When I arrived in Sanford, there was a racial divide because many people, I have one person that told me orally, and she was 101 years old, what had occurred because they didn't write anything down. When I started to look at the city overall, I started to see the racial divide, such as we see in Louisville at the Ninth Street Divide, which hasn't changed, and I couldn't tell you how many years. I've been 30 years. It has not changed. So I saw a tale of two cities. One part of Sanford looked like this. The other part of Sanford looked like this. And by the way, before I forget, that is Chief Cecil. I became the first African-American health commissioner in um, Seminole County, and Chief Cecil was first African-American police chief. 
And this is how the other part of the city looked, where the African Americans lived in Goldsboro. So what common issues do we see most of the time? We see this in every city. Lack of job training, lack of employment opportunities, deteriorated neighborhoods, lack of decent, affordable living. I saw poor housing. I saw kids come to the hospital with asthma, but there was no policy to say that we could get rid of motor mildew. Some of the housing was dilapidated. There was no policies like we have in Louisville that would send the health department in to investigate. We also see where there was food deserts that existed. There was a high rate of crime. There was lack of parks and recreation that was decent for people to exercise. So we talk about obesity and we counsel our patients, but they have nowhere where they actually go exercise and feel safe. And then here's the poverty level. So this should look very familiar to us because this is in every major city. So what I ask everybody to do is let's take a step back. Let's have a health and all policies approach because we have to change the policies that put this structure and systematic structure in place. Here's the list of my board members. Um, I'm very thankful that they're heavily invested in the community. Some of the people you might know, uh, they are on this journey with me. And every one of my stops, uh, I've had the opportunity to focus in on health inequities. Park Duval would be a leader in that in the future. And I would end by saying, you know, we have to begin to break the chains. And this is a picture when I was in Gory Island in Senegal. We have to begin to break the chains of the mentality of what's occurring in our communities. We have to begin to look at the structure. You know, I'm very familiar with looking at the hospital data and what shows up. But we have to take a high-level approach, and we need everybody's involvement. We need politicians' involvement. We need grassroots involvement. We need professors' involvement. This should be something that we actually engage together because we continue to have these same conversations, but nothing changes. And every time we look at a natural disaster, this is what we always see, right? Because the systems that were put in place have not allowed people to change the dynamic. And so as we move forward in the future, you know, Park Duval will continue to try to be a leader, be heavily engaged in the community, be accountable to the community, but be a partner with everybody. And I will end by this. The citizens who needed the greatest assistance were fragile. The burden of health care and public health for disadvantaged populations in our society does not just lie within the community or state within our nation. So thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Jed. So next, I have the great honor to introduce my colleague, Dr. Ted Smith. Uh, Dr. Smith is a research associate professor of medicine in the Division of Environmental Medicine. Dr. Smith is also director of the Center for Healthy Air, Water, and Soil in the Christina Lee Brown Environment Institute at University of Louisville. So next to share about flushing health insights down the drain is Dr. Smith. Well, uh, Dr. DeJarnett, thank you very much. So uh, I was uh, pleased that Ms. Gadsden asked me to uh, share some of the work that we've been doing actually since uh, early 2019, um, looking in the sewers and thinking about our health as a community. Now, I don't want anybody to think that's a crazy idea because quite literally the field of public health traces its roots back to a very famous event in history with uh, Dr. Jonathan Snow, who identified uh, cholera outbreaks origin in London in 1854 as being caused by sewage that was leaking into the natural well system under the streets of London and traced the entire outbreak in a, in a central part of London to one drinking well. And 
it was a major breakthrough in medicine and health, public health, to really think about you know the environmental circumstances that people are in as a, perhaps the most important way to understand what's going on. Because again, these were people that were getting sick and dying and sort of all over the place. And they were blaming it on interesting theories about air quality and spending a lot of time chasing that agenda. And uh, the whole time it was uh, literally uh, human waste uh, getting into the drinking supply. So that was 1854. And, you know, into the early 20th century, there have been various, I guess we'll call success stories, uh, where we could recognize that some of these infectious agents and pathogens, you know, so that was cholera, you know, then there's typhus, big epidemic outbreaks uh, across the world. With typhus, you know, uh, an even more complicated arrangement, you know, was devised where they were able to trace from, you know, big sewer lines to small sewer lines to neighborhoods to households and find infected people. And so this is, you know, 1952, you know, these little sampling points were numbers and they indicated whether there was an infected person or not in each of these locations. And they were able to work their way down to a household. And in case you think there is nothing new, there is nothing new. So two weeks ago in the journal Nature, which is a highly prestigious journal, we find that um, a group in Wisconsin was able to track this um, very unusual variant of COVID through an identical methodology that that paper in 1952 went through. And they went from big trunk sewer lines all the way down into uh, neighborhoods and houses. And so this is a, a potentially powerful tool. And, you know, like all powerful tools, you know, we can all probably think of good and bad uses of um, of these tools. But, you know, the point of today is to, to tell you a bit about the tools. And I really hope as part of a, a really great community that we have here in Louisville, we can best explore together how these tools can responsibly help inform uh, environmental justice, environmental uh, health disparities. Now, Beyond typhus and cholera and all those things that happened in the 18 to 1900s, the eradication of polio, which um, many of you may know is, is not a complete success story at this point in time, but the World Health Organization's official declaration of the eradication of polio was the last 50 countries that eradication of polio came from sewage monitoring to find the last cases they could in those countries. Many of those countries were in Africa, and um, there was, was not a healthcare infrastructure to, um, to test, to vaccinate uh, a very disparate, parse, sparse population in, in, um, in village communities that were you know, really not at all like much of what we are used to in the United States, where the healthcare system is doing a lot of the work in public health surveillance, uh, not the case there. So believe it or not, sewage uh, was the, the key for polio for its worldwide eradication. You know, there's just the last few countries that came up and are, are sort of colored on the map. And so you can see as, as it disappearing, we're sort of working our way through countries that had less healthcare infrastructure to uh, intercept patients. Okay, so if we fast forward from all of that to this pandemic that is um, winding down now, you know, there for a long time, you know, people thought, well, you know, we must have a public health infrastructure in this country that is going to be able to rise to the task of uh, helping us beat 
uh, this particular pathogen, right? Uh, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus, which causes COVID-19. Well, early on, <laughs> there was a lot of things that happened in 2019 and 2020, but among them included uh, sort of an um, inavailability of test supplies. And so uh, it was very difficult to, to do testing early on. So the public health infrastructure in this country wasn't able to test people who were interested in knowing whether they might be infected. It was restricted only to symptomatic individuals. And then two months later, we would find out that there were asymptomatic infectious individuals and that there were infectious periods before people developed symptoms, so pre-symptomatic people. And, and this idea that we could rely on the healthcare system as a front, as a first line of monitoring, really was a was not a good idea, um, and it really didn't work very well. Is the truth, and so we have been undercounting infection consistently for the entire pandemic. Most of it because of a set, a set of assumptions that we would be able to find, you know, these people as they come in to visit with their doctors and end up in the hospital that we would test them and we figure out who's got the virus. And it just was a, a, a wide miss. And, you know, the alternatives, of course, are hard to imagine, you know, to say, well, let's open up public testing everywhere all the time. And so that, you know, uh, that's going to be the way we're going to solve that problem. We're just everybody should be able to walk out their door and get a test or get one mailed to them or whatever it is. And then, you know, we would find out that that's also really complicated. It's temporary and it's expensive. And so uh, I just grabbed a headline a little bit ago. Uh, this is this, this headline could be for Kentucky. It could be for every state in the United States that, you know, at the end of the day, we, as a country, we are not going to invest in making testing available after December of this year, maybe into March. But most funds run out by December. Um, most, I mean, um, I believe all of Kentucky has stopped public testing uh, as of two months ago. Now you can maybe work your way into getting a test if you're symptomatic, but there's no longer any um, asymptomatic testing. So, you know, it's making the point, it's complicated, it's temporary, and it's expensive. And so we maybe would benefit from having another way to figure out whether there are sick people in our community. And that way could be um, by, you know, taking that chapter out of polio and cholera and typhus and, you know, taking a look at to see how useful it would be to sample the sewers. And the basic idea here is that when you're infected um, with we have a COVID infection, you will shed some of that virus through your feces. And uh, like I like to tell elementary school students that everyone poops. Poop could be a pretty important tool for this pandemic, as well as many others. And not only things that come out in feces, but things that come uh, through urine. And so uh, I love to say, and I think the line has been ripped off, our sewers are the collective gut of our community. And so everything that's in your gut uh, will probably end up in the sewer you know, even back uh, into the United States, even though there's no active polio surveillance program operating in the United States because of the COVID applications of wastewater monitoring, we've now found uh, one or two cases of polio in the United States. In fact, the state of New York has now declared a public emergency around polio because of the cases that they found in their sewers in New York City. So um, there's a lot of reason to believe that this is not a crazy idea but rather uh, maybe a very useful tool that we really didn't think that we needed. One of the other things that's important to know is early on in the pandemic, and this is in 2019, a paper was published out of Yale that showed that uh, the wastewater levels of the virus 
preceded by two weeks what the healthcare system would see. Um, so that means, you know, as we as you see levels rise in the wastewater, two weeks later, admissions rise in the hospital and admissions in the ICU rise and ultimately deaths rise. And then as it falls in the wastewater, cases fall in the hospital, ICU use falls and death falls. So um, that was very appealing to a lot of uh, public health and healthcare uh, people because, you know, maybe I, I won't call it early warning in the sense that, you know, we'll be able to stop something necessarily, but early warning in the sense that we have a better picture of what the extent of infection is by looking here. Just to give a quick primer, there's lots of ways to collect the, the gut of all of us. Um, one of them is to literally dip a bucket into a active sewer pipe and take a sample. Uh, a slightly more sophisticated thing to do is to open a manhole and put in a tube that pulls a sample out every few minutes over 24 hours so you can get a, a representative picture of a community uh, over over time where right? you get every you know the, increase the odds that everybody is participating in the sample when you do that and then you can go to the wastewater treatment plant which at the wastewater treatment plants and we have five of them here in Jefferson County you know they have to do regulatory compliance testing for the Clean Water Act all the time to essentially demonstrate that they're not discharging anything dangerous into the waterways as they treat the sewage and so there's an infrastructure there to go ahead and grab uh, to get Examples, and, and that's a, a choice that many communities in the United States have made. And I'll, tell, I'll tell you in a few seconds about why that might not be best as we want to understand environmental justice issues. There have been many different scales of testing. So I mentioned, you know, you can get little samples, which you might get outside of a dorm room or, you know, a, a nursing home. Uh, you might be able to get a, a line that comes out of a campus setting. So in the lower left, that's one of our uh, Kentucky State prisons. The Department of Corrections has been monitoring wastewater in all 14 prisons for two years now. You know, so that's a small scale, right? That's it, It's probably... Uh, several hundred people, um, maybe a thousand people, but it's, it's not your individual toilet, right? It's on a very, very tiny frame, um, but it's also not a, a big community kind of a, a frame. So what, we, what we've done a lot of here in Jefferson County is we've broken up the county into, think of it as multiple neighborhoods. So, you know, 10,000, 8,000 is sort of the lowest number of households in any catchment area that we've ever worked in, but, you know, it goes up to 30,000, 50,000. And so you, you can see that we could get a, a flavor of how different parts of Jefferson County and those colored blobs of those different, what we call sewer sheds, catchment areas, or you could go to those five treatment plants that, um, that I mentioned. And remember, all of these little areas in the middle ultimately feed into the big treatment plants. And so, you know, we can have a sort of two shots at, um, at something sometimes. If we don't see it in the treatment plant, we might see it in the neighborhood. If we see it in the neighborhood, maybe over time we'll see it in the treatment plant. Just to give you all a sense of, of what we're looking at right now. So this is as of yesterday in Jefferson County for uh, COVID. Uh, you know, we have relatively high levels of infection in our community you can see not quite as high as we saw, you know, kind of back in July, but, you know, as high as, you know, what we saw during the Omicron surge. So we have a lot of people who are infected in Jefferson County. The interesting thing about that, and by the way, this is how it, um, how it's trended with case data that the, the city or county gets. And so you can see the wastewater data in Jefferson County has tracked 
pretty neatly until recently, as we have a, a, a less lethal, you know, less acute outcome. So, you know, we have a lot of people who are infected and they're not in the hospital, thankfully. Many people who are infected today have been infected before or have been vaccinated. And so they are having less acute cases. So we have a lot of infected people who aren't as sick, which is a good thing, generally speaking. Now, I think we'd rather just have a lot of people who aren't infected, but uh, if you're going to have something, this is the next best thing, I think. We also um, have been partnering with a group at Stanford looking at monkeypox virus um, just uh, in the wastewater treatment plant with a, in, a part, in our partnership with MSD. No cases um, have been detected in the wastewater, though there have been cases that have been intercepted clinically. So there's some questions about how many cases you really need in the sewage before you, you can uh, reliably indicate infection above ground. And then uh, just to give you all a sense, you may know uh, that we're back in the green according to the CDC guidelines for COVID. And that is mostly because this, when the CDC updated their guidance, it's heavily weighted towards hospital activity. And a lot of the concerns have been, we don't want to overwhelm the hospital system. That's always been the, the story since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we want to make sure people who need care can get care. And so while we have a lot of infected people in Louisville, Kentucky, we uh, don't have an overwhelmed hospital system. In fact, everything is um, in, a, in a pretty good place at this point in time. So there you get to see the difference between monitoring what we can learn about the community and its health and perhaps what policymakers think is an important or not important uh, kind of a problem. You should also know that we've been doing um, full genome sequencing of the virus that we cover out of the wastewater. And uh, this is the most recent analysis of the variants that are in different parts of our community. So here, just at the five wastewater treatment plants, which you know cover the entire county in different parts, you can see that we still uh, have a lot of BA5 and a little bit of BA4. And uh, there's nothing uh, particularly scary on the horizon. And of course, we should all be happy and grateful for that, given the movie that we've all seen together of new variants popping up and displacing others and potentially having therapeutic implications or vaccination implications. We have been very fortunate that um, no disturbing uh, mutations have occurred uh, and taken hold uh, in the world and uh, certainly here in Jefferson County. You might also be interested in the fact that we share our data through the state with the CDC. The CDC operates a national wastewater surveillance system. So you can see a kind of a dot map across the United States of sewer systems that are tracking um, SARS, the COVID virus. So you can see, you know, the story changes kind of depending on where you're looking in the United States. There's no obviously consistent pattern at this point in time. Um, we used to see something very east to west. You know, we look in Europe and then we'd see it in the east coast of the United States and then we would see it here a little bit later. Those kinds of patterns um, haven't been evident um, since Omicron started. One thing to know in the spirit of environmental justice applications, one reason we took a look below the treatment plants is because we had a belief that uh, we, knew, well, we knew that there was different access to health care, uh, different access to testing, different access to vaccination in different parts of our community, and that maybe uh, we can understand a little bit about health equity and this particular virus if we were to be sampling it in tight enough scales so that we could show differences kind of between parts of town. Again, not like streets in neighborhoods, but uh, groups of neighborhoods compared to other groups of neighborhoods. And, um, you know, I'll just quickly show you, this is proof um, 
and we've we've shared this with uh, thousands of other people. You know, if you just look at a treatment plant like Morris Foreman, you can see, it, you know, in this particular story, you'd say, well, gosh, over time, you know, maybe it's gone up a little bit because I'm measuring Morris Foreman and the virus is going up in this period of time. But if I were to look at two neighborhoods that contribute to Morris Foreman, and one of the neighborhoods, you can see that that one has gone through a tremendous growth in infection. And that one is 88% black in population demographics. And yeah, the other one uh, I can tell you is um, 20% black or less. And so here we can see burying differences in health, uh, health status by aggregating the sewage in the treatment plant. And so, you know, th this has not been particularly popular nationally because there is additional cost associated with working outside of the wastewater treatment plant, out in the streets, out in the manholes. But, you know, if we really do feel strongly about the importance of health equity, we're, you know, going to have to challenge ourselves with understanding health, perhaps at a different geographic scale than uh, what the United States has currently signed up to do. Now, there is another side to this coin, and I just I feel very obligated to tell you about it. So a lot of the work done in wastewater monitoring before COVID was really focused on substance abuse, um, very focused on opioids. And there was a brief period of time that Louisville participated in a project with Arizona State University looking at um, opioids. And, you know, this is a dashboard from the city of Tempe, Arizona, where they have been tracking uh, opiate use uh, for a very long time. And, you know, I guess I can just tell you pr probably what you all know as common sense, you know, areas that have high substance abuse issues maybe don't require sewage surveillance to figure that out. But maybe even more importantly, COVID, is, I hope, has taught everybody an important lesson that, you know, once you know something, what will you be doing about it? In the case of opiates, we won't participate in this kind of monitoring because the only thing at this moment our government agencies are willing to do is send law enforcement in. And, you know, I think we then have to think about, you know, that redlining conversation that we were talking about with mortgages. You know, if, if we have the ability to generate additional stigma, that's not going to be helpful. And so, you know, we as a matter of policy, at least at the University of Louisville, will not participate in drug surveillance because uh, it's, it's unimaginable that that's going to produce um, any good outcome for the neighborhoods that would be monitored. And so um, caused a big uh, issue with us, with the university, uh, with Arizona State. But, you know, I think we have to, we, we all have to really ask ourselves, are we helping, right? And, uh, and this kind of tool, you know, it, it's blind to those kinds of questions, right? It's just looking at chemicals. I just show you, we can, you know, you can also learn about smoking habits. So this is nicotine very, very accurately. So we can, you can get down to packs per day, um, reliable estimates in communities, um, just looking at the wastewater. One of the things maybe relevant to this group, especially is uh, we've just done um, some new work um, looking at metabolites of air pollution. And so, you know, one of the predominant air toxics in West Louisville and Rubbertown are these volatile organic compounds. And we've been working really hard for the last year and a half to come up with a lab method that we can identify urinary metabolites. So this is the only way this appears is if somebody has um, inhaled and processed in their own body exposure to that um, VOC gas, and then they've uh, secreted it out in their urine. 
And so, you know, here we have two communities in Jefferson County, you know, community one, community two, and um, we have various, we have a whole panel of metabolites of exposure to different VOCs. And so we are very excited about this. We think this is nationally important. And, um, you know, we really hope to um, begin regular uh, monitoring uh, of this in 2023. We just received a renewal from the um, NIEHS, National Institutes of Environmental Sciences, for our Superfund program. And uh, we'll be working some of this into, uh, into that project. So very excited about that as another tool uh, in, the, in the toolkit for understanding air pollution and exposure to air toxics. And then um, also on the horizon for us is uh, some work uh, with PFAS, Forever Chemicals. You may or may not know that the Biden administration has declared these Forever Chemicals, uh, Superfund Chemicals, and they are, you know, they are now going to be regulated at very, 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 very low levels. Um, all water systems in Kentucky are out of attainment for safe levels of PFAS. So we know that um, uh, the sooner we can develop a, a way to understand where that exposure is and do something about it, uh, the better. And so we think um, hunting in the sewers uh, may be one way to understand where these PFAS gradients are. So we're going to start in Shepherdsville. That's uh, not, not quite as big to put your arms around as Jefferson County, but I, I hope uh, in partnership with MSD and the Louisville Water Company, we can uh, use some of these tools for that as well. And on that, I'm sure I'm over time, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share this with you. A big thank you to all of the other people that do this work. I just mostly put together PowerPoints and talk to people, but uh, all these hardworking people made this happen. So uh, a big thanks to them. And thank you. Without further ado, our next speaker is Dr. Natasha DeJarnett, and she's the Assistant Professor of Environmental Medicine in the Christie Lee Brown Environmental Institute at University of Louisville. She is a lecturer at George Washington University. And Natasha is going to talk about climate change, health, and equity, climate change, and environmental justice. You're on. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for organizing this amazing day and for allowing me to participate. So one thing that I want us to keep in mind as we think about climate change and health equity is that though it's a global phenomenon and much of what I'll share with you is the national picture of it, climate change is experienced locally. And we have massive flooding that we experienced earlier this summer in eastern Kentucky. Um, we have Louisville's fast-growing urban heat island effect. We have drought in the west. We have vector-borne disease in the northeast, sea level rise along the coast, and the list goes on. So I want you to consider that these differences can be felt by different geographic locations, differently in different population segments, and even by neighborhood, as we'll touch on today. But examining the justice aspects of climate change means that we can't just look at climate in its own bubble. Therefore, I want to point out that while I'll share with you about the multiple um, climate and health impacts we face, some are exacerbated by climate change. Um, and then climate change can also confound our response to other threats. So consider three health emergencies. COVID-19, as we were uh, just discussing. Also consider the racial reckoning, um, which certainly hit hard here in Louisville with the murder of Breonna Taylor, and then also consider climate change. And we've unfortunately seen numerous examples of climate events just in 2022 alone. It's already known that the rainfall from Hurricane Ian was 10% higher because of climate change. We had the deadly floods in Eastern Kentucky. We also, right before that, had an un 
unprecedented destructive December tornado in Western Kentucky. Then think about Hurricane Fiona, um, uh, which we were discussing right before Hurricane Ian that devastated Puerto Rico with power outages. All of these have affected health and all of these are in the midst of COVID-19 and the racial reckoning. So Dr. Jalan White Newsom, one of my environmental health heroes and an environmental justice scholar had this to say, connecting our three emergencies of COVID, climate, and the racial reckoning. Across the US, climate change and COVID-19 are playing out in tandem. The warming planet drives increasingly extreme weather, compounding the pandemic's impacts and complicating disaster response. At the same time, these dual threats have exposed the profound inequities that divide and weaken us. And so COVID-19 has laid bare health disparities in the U.S. Dating back as early as April 2020, we began to notice the differences in death rates, particularly for people of color and older, and older adults. And this field, this is a field by determinants of health and systemic factors, racial disparities in housing, employment and education, and environmental exposures. Data from November 2020 demonstrates some of the lasting impacts of the COVID disparities, where certain populations demonstrated up to four times increased risk of contracting, being hospitalized for, or dying from COVID. And I wanted to share that with you because what I find interesting is that many of these same populations that have a greater risk of COVID also have a heavier burden of the health threats of climate change. And the threats are vast. I want to make sure it's clear that we are all at risk to the health threats of climate change. But there are some groups that are more susceptible um, to these health threats and climate change can actually be a threat multiplier exacerbating some of the inequities that these groups are already experiencing. For example, consider children. 88% of the global burden of climate change falls on children younger than five years old. 88% of the global burden falls on children younger than age five. This is a generational justice issue. Um, and they are uniquely susceptible for a number of reasons, including that their organ systems are still developing. So exposure during certain stages could have short or long-term consequences on their health. Also consider older adults. As you are well aware, older adults are more likely to have chronic diseases that may make them more susceptible to the health threats of climate change. Impoverished communities or communities of low wealth may lack the resources to support infrastructure updates or to recover quickly following an extreme weather event. And these areas also tend to have limited access to needed healthcare services. Further, communities of color are most likely to live on the fence lines of industrial pollution. The strongest predictor of where hazardous polluters are located is race. It's not income or other factors, but race. And people of color make up the majority of people that live within three kilometers of a hazardous waste facility. Um, so I share with you these burdens faced by these populations because we cannot truly address climate change if our most vulnerable don't benefit from action. Therefore, we can't meaningfully address climate change without addressing justice. And I'll take that even a step further. I heard Dr. or I heard Peggy Shepard of We Act um, for Environmental Justice share that we can't have environmental justice without climate justice. So it's all interconnected and all needed. So even our most well-intentioned efforts to address climate change will be undermined if justice isn't at the center.
So I'll briefly step through the health impacts of climate threats um, through the threats that you see here on the screen and share with you some of the populations that bear a heavier burden and some adaptation activities that are taking place across the U.S. So we all deserve clean air to breathe, but climate change is decreasing the quality of the air that we breathe. Um, it's increasing carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, and this is trapping heat and pollutants below like a blanket traps heat. So air pollution decreases our air quality. This extra trapped heat also reduces our air quality. And climate promotes drought conditions, which creates environments that are conducive to wildfires. And we're watching uh, wildfire season out west. Um, and how that is impacting air quality there and even here, as we understand that wildfire smoke can travel thousands of miles. Um, the warmer temperatures are also resulting in a longer pollen season, and the research suggests that the increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is also increasing the intensity of the pollen. So we have a longer and more intense pollen season, which is bad news for allergy sufferers. And another allergen that we're exposed to is mold, which can result after flooding in our homes or schools or workplaces. So poor air quality is associated with increased risk of heart and lung disease, and this intensifying pollen season increases the likelihood of allergy symptoms. And all of this together is more than just a nuisance. Both allergies and asthma increase the likelihood of school and workplace absences or even decreased productivity. There's a new paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine um, earlier this summer, actually, and it presents findings that nearly every, no, not nearly, every major organ system um, is adversely impacted by air pollution exposure. Um, so consider children, communities of color, impoverished communities, and those on the fence lines. All of these groups bear a higher burden of exposure to poor air quality. But as I said, we can't just look at climate change in its own bubble, we're also experiencing the COVID-19 pandemic at the same time. So, um, and, and what we found is that um, cities that have higher air pollution, um, a one unit increase of um, fine particulate matter is associated with an 8% increase in COVID-19 mortality in cities across the U.S. And I just wanted to shed a little bit more light on disparities that are born by COVID-19. And to do that, American University researchers um, looked during the um, regulatory pause uh, that occurred from March to August of 2020 to understand some of the relationship between air pollution exposure, COVID mortality, and disparities. So Dr. Claudia Prosecco and her team at American University shared results potentially linking air pollution and COVID mortality during the regulatory pause. And they found that during the regulatory pause, there were higher levels of PM2.5 and ozone. They also found higher COVID deaths and found disparities that this relationship was more striking in counties that had a higher percentage of African-Americans. So this drove a hypothesis that counties with higher toxic releases also have higher COVID rates. But I don't want to leave you in the dark space. I, I give a lot of really negative, unfortunate health information. So I also want to share some things that are happening across the U.S. and even here in our community um, that are helping our communities to adapt to the health impacts of climate change. Um, so we have climate adaptation, but then also climate and health adaptation where we're protecting communities um, from the health risk. Um, so things that are occurring, testing air quality, also disseminating alerts and 
enforcing air quality regulation. There's also a great field of green infrastructure. Um, trees can be uh, a, a strong strategy to help adapt to climate, not just trees actually, but green space. So one of our answers here at University of Louisville to protecting communities from air pollution um, is the Green Heart Project. And I am so appreciative that Dr. McCants teed this up uh, very well by exposing the lack of trees and, and the inequitable distribution of trees um, in Louisville and how that's related to health outcomes. So our project is supported by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and the Nature Conservancy, among many other partners and the community. So often in an intervention study, you'll hear that there's a pill or a medical um, procedure that's the intervention. In the Green Heart Project, uh, trees are the intervention. So we're planting trees and shrubs for healthier air, and we're examining health indicators and air quality levels before and after tree planting. And to, the, to our best knowledge, this is the only study in the nation that is examining and quantifying the health benefits of tree planting. So Green Heart, therefore, has the opportunity to establish roots as a healthier and greener neighborhood so we started tree planting in October of 2021. We planted over 8,000 trees, and now we're looking to understand the health benefits. And so changing gears towards extreme heat, climate change has increased the severity, the frequency, and duration of extreme heat events. And this is especially concerning because heat is already the top cause of natural weather-related death in our nation. Extreme heat um, increases our risk of heat-related illness, including heat stroke, which can be deadly if not addressed quickly. It also raises our risk of heart and lung complications. Um, further, there are mental health impacts that include increased violence and aggression under extreme heat conditions. And extreme heat can even render inactive some psychotropic medications. So populations that are most sensitive include older adults um, where they have more chronic disease, but also they experience more social isolation. So they may not be aware of heat alerts. Um, children spend more time outdoors. They don't really have the capacity to know when they've overdone it, need to cool off, come indoors or get a cold drink. Um, communities of color and impoverished communities are more likely to live in urban heat islands, and the EPA has reported that urban heat islands can be 20 degrees hotter at night than surrounding areas. Um, people that work outdoors, people in agriculture, people in construction also bear a higher burden when it comes to extreme heat exposure. There's much action that's taking place across the US to address extreme heat. And that also comes in the name of green infrastructure. So projects like our Green Heart Study, um, uh, uh, one other aspect that we're investigating within Green Heart is to look at changes in temperature that might be um, related to increasing tree cover. Um, but there's also education and dissemination of alerts to make sure those alerts are reached far and wide and that all have access to know that there's a heat alert. But then furthermore, we need um, interventions that can help people to be able to withstand. And cooling centers can be one of those. But the thing about the cooling center is to make sure that everybody can actually access and utilize the cooling center. Um, increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is increasing surface water temperatures, making the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events both more frequent and more extreme. And we're seeing this right now as Hurricane um, Ian 
um, has made a couple landfalls uh, here in the U.S. But if we look back to 2017, 2017 was a record-breaking year for hurricanes in the U.S. with hurricanes Harvey, Irma, and Maria all like making landfall in the U.S. and all within about six weeks. Um, then insert 2020, we had so many named storms that we dipped into the Greek alphabet that year. Um, and all of these were further complicated by COVID, um, where COVID complicates disaster preparedness. This puts more of a strain on our already strained healthcare infrastructure. So let's take a snapshot um, into Hurricane Harvey, actually, as a case study. The injustice with exposure to these storms lies in the recovery. So resource-rich communities can return to normal quickly. Meanwhile, communities of color um, and low-wealth communities in Houston were still working to rebuild a year after Hurricane Harvey. Uh, because the industrial area there was lower and in closer proximity to the communities of color and low wealth communities, insert redlining, racial segregation, as uh, Sarah Lynn Cunningham pointed out earlier, they were far more susceptible when those industries flooded, leaving contamination to breach their water supply. And earlier this year, news broke that um, the Department of Housing and Urban Development um, acknowledged that there was discrimination um, against African-American and Hispanic residents in the allocation of flood relief money following Hurricane Harvey. There's much that's taking place in the name of um, extreme weather adaptation across the U.S. Again, COVID complicates disaster response, uh, but what we know about extreme weather is that the earlier and further that people are able to evacuate, um, the better their mental health outcomes are. So ensuring evacuation access is an important aspect of um, extreme weather adaptation. So climate change is increasing flooding on one hand and um, increasing drought on the other. So when we have a heavy flooding event, this can cause our stormwater to overflow our sewer water system, causing contamination into our drinking water supply. One study reports that half, about half of waterborne outbreaks um, were preceded by a heavy rainfall event. And then with drought, we see impacts of agriculture like decreased crop yield and even decreased quality of the crops that we consume. And this can all be linked with malnutrition. So communities that have very close ties to the land, like indigenous communities or agricultural communities, they bear a higher social and economic burden of drought. And things that are being done to address these can include uh, water quality advisory, as well as restricting development in flood-prone areas. But there are a number of populations that are adversely burdened by drought. I'll just name a couple here. Communities with uh, those close ties to the land. Also, rural communities, those that are reliant on small or private drinking water. They may be particularly at risk of limited water access um, through an ongoing drought. Um, and then there's a growing body of evidence that drought exacerbates chronic illness like kidney disease, diabetes, and hypertension. And so things that are being done to address extreme precipitation, particularly um, flooding risk, um, as I pointed out, includes having water advisories and making sure those advisories are disseminated far and wide. Also having designs that better have handle stormwater runoff, but also green infrastructure is helpful here as well, where trees or plants with strong roots are also able to help absorb um, some of the water from flooding as well. And then lastly, uh, vector-borne disease. So climate change is increasing the amount and geographic distribution of disease-carrying mosquitoes and ticks. Um, 
So what we're seeing is that, um, well, I'll, I'll give you a, a more concrete example. From the years of 20, 2004 to 2016, we have seen a tripling in vector-borne diseases here in the U.S., and that includes Lyme disease, West Nile virus, and Zika. So populations that are susceptible include pregnant people, where exposure to Zika virus during pregnancy can increase risk of microcephaly. Children, uh, children spend more time outdoors, so they're more exposed, uh, so they may bear a heavier burden when it comes to vector-borne disease as well. And then we have our um, communities of low wealth. Poor housing quality may include homes that don't have window screens or do not have access to air conditioning, and that can also leave you more exposed uh, to vector-borne disease. Um, and there's much that can be done. Per, uh, public health professionals are educating physicians that they're going to see changes um, in vector-borne disease in their clinics. Um, this, uh, this example comes from Maine. Um, where they've been educating physicians and also equipping them with information that they can hand to their patients um, to encourage them to wear insect repellent to cover the skin, um, to eradicate areas of standing water that might be havens for mosquito greening. Um, and then in, uh, set in public health settings, um, utilizing integrated pest management to better understand how these um, pests grow and thrive and where to actually um, interrupt in their life cycle. So as I close out, I just wanted to make sure it's clear that climate change doesn't only threaten our physical health, but our mental health as well. So exposure to extreme weather and floods can increase our risk of stress, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and depression. Extreme heat or extreme weather can also increase risk of violence, suicide, and suicidal ideations. And extreme heat can even render inactive some psychotropic medications. Thank you so much for your time today. And we'll wrap it up here with some brief remarks by Dr. Kelly McCants, director of Norton's West End Hospital from the October 1st Environmental Justice Conference. So over the next few minutes, I'm going to just highlight uh, what I believe are uh, environmental issues that need to be discussed from a patient perspective, and then highlight what Norton Healthcare's efforts are in the West End and how everything ties together. So the timeliness of this presentation was important. So this week, the Courier Journal released this article uh, about Norton Healthcare and its role in environmental racism. And the question is, what is Norton Healthcare going to do? And so as we move through this presentation, we, we want to keep that in mind. But the message is one hospital cannot take back the years of disinvestment into communities. And we're not naive enough to believe that we can change what's done from an environmental uh, racism and environmental justice standpoint. However, access to health care for those that have been affected is where we want to land. And so when you look at this map of where Norton Healthcare's uh, new hospital, the Western Hospital will be, 28th and Broadway, we sit in the middle and the heart of the West End. And when you look at the map for where there's toxic release inventories, uh, it's all around the Western Hospital, which means we will definitely be taking care of patients and their families that have had historical exposures to, to toxins in the environment. But unfortunately, sometimes when patients present, it all looks the same. You know, sometimes it's hard to determine if the chemical pollutants that are in the soil cause your diabetes or your mental health. And so there's two different levels that things will be addressed on. But I think the most important point 
is that patients will have access and this serves as a platform to continue the discussions that we're having here. And so for me, when we're talking about environmental racism, we're talking about a systemic issue where obviously communities of color have been disproportionately affected with health hazards. And sometimes that looks like toxic waste, sewage, landfills, power stations, roads, and even airborne matter, which when you think about from my perspective, when we're trying to determine what may be a set off for allergies or asthma, we have to consider the patient and the environment that they live in. And so I think it's unique to have a screening tool to try to figure out where to invest resources and to risk stratify. But it can be as simple as when you look at the uh, graphics of which people have been historically affected, it's not even close that our Latinx and our African-Americans have 63% more pollution than any other race. And so while we're being conscious with our tools uh, that I love and support, as well as the triple bottom line, uh, it can be just as simple as finding the area that has the highest poverty rate and the highest concentration of minorities. And that's the area where we need to, to impact. And to make it simple, the communities that have greater than 20% of representation of African-Americans or Hispanics has been disproportionately and historically affected by toxic waste. And this dates back in the 80s, but we go back into the 30s and even forward to the future. It's not difficult to figure out where we need to deploy resources to. Um, I'm, I claim Alabama is home and, and my brother is the first black captain for the police department in Anniston, Alabama, one of the leading cities as it relates to civil rights. But it was also one of the leading cities as it relates to environmental hazards and pollution. And the Army Depot at Fort McClellan uh, was a storage site for chemical warfare. And it actually trained soldiers in these uh, areas in terms of how to defend and use chemical agents. Well, when there was a transition in warfare strategy, all of these chemicals had to be getting rid of. And where do you think they were, were disposed of? And so when you start to think about some of the, the chemicals and the exposures in Aniston, you got Agent Orange, you got blister agents, you got tear gas, cobalt, uranium. All of these things were disposed of in local rivers and landfills in the community next to Fort McClellan. And so when you start to think about this and trying to figure out where to deploy resources, Aniston is about 30% African-American. The income line is in range with about 30,000. And again, uh, has had a historical long history of disinvestment. We have to be conscious when we employ these strategies in terms of what we think will improve a community, but making sure that if we change the water source or deal with water supply differently, um, as it goes in these African-American communities and Hispanic communities, we need to make sure that we deal with the contaminants that go along with it. For me, on the clinical side, it looks like Legionnaire's disease which most providers have not seen in over 15 or 20 years. And it's very difficult to treat when it comes into your hospital if you're not prepared to deal with it. If we're not allowed to listen to the people from the community to make sure that as we develop strategies to take care of the patients in the community, then we haven't done what we're supposed to. So thank you. 
And that's all we have time for here on Truth to Power. Hope you've enjoyed this second edition of highlights from the October 1st Environmental Justice Conference put on by the NAACP, UofL's Environment Institute, and the West Jefferson County Community Task Force. You can learn more at facebook.com slash WJCCTF.